advice. So once again, we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. And for those of you who are new, uh, joining us online or here in person, a a special welcome to you. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, regardless of your spiritual background, if you're checking Christianity out for the first time or if you've been in the church for a long time, you are very welcome here. And as Alyssa mentioned, all throughout the worship set, uh, we're simply about Jesus. We just want you to know him and to enjoy the fullness of life that comes from walking with him. And so what we're doing in the first part of this year is we're going through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. And when you look at the life of Peter, you see that Peter's a very human character. He had a lot of flaws. He failed Jesus when it counted most. But what happened with Peter is that he came to a point in his life where he saw what it meant that he belonged to Jesus. And this changed everything for him. And so this letter that he writes, is to he's writing it to Christians who are in a culture pretty similar to ours, where... Um, you're not looked well upon if you're a Christian. And so what he says is, if, if you're a Christian, how do you live authentically, like not just in church, but in the public square and in your workplace in a way that you're true to who you are as a follower of Jesus, while at the same time loving well and working well with those who aren't Christians and those who may even look down on you or, or view your beliefs as detrimental to society. And what you probably noticed in the passage that we just read today is, there is nothing shiny or sexy about what Peter's calling us to do in these, in these few verses. So think about what he's saying. He's saying, have humility, have sympathy, be careful with your speech. These are basic practices, and that's precisely the point. Because the more you read the Bible, the more that you see, the more you see one of the main threads in the scriptures is that the main way God works in his people isn't by calling them to do extraordinary things. So you have exceptions, people like Esther and Moses in the Old Testament or the Apostle Paul in the New Testament where God calls them to do exceptional things. But usually how God works through his people is simply calling us to pursue simple godliness in the boring and mundane situations of daily life. And as we do that, he accomplishes extraordinary things. This this is such a key insight into living well and to knowing Christ well. And just think about it as a very quick example. Just envision with me for a moment what D.C. would look like, what your workplace would look like, what your family would look like, what Twitter would look like, if everybody practiced just these simple things, being careful with their speech, incredibly humble, sympathetic. My goodness, would that not be a different world? And so that's what God does. He does extraordinary things through very ordinary means and faithfulness. And so here's what we'll look at as we look at these simple practices in this passage. So first we'll just look at what what do these practices look like in action that Peter's calling us to? So what do they look like in action? Number two, how do we get the ability to do it? 
because they're very difficult. This is why so few people do it. And then number three, what do what does following what happens, what's accomplished when we follow these very ordinary practices? So verse number one, just what do they look like? Number two, how do we get the ability to do it? And then number three, what's accomplished when we're faithful in applying these very basic practices in the mundane aspects of our lives? So first, number one, what are uh, these basic practices that Peter's calling us to? So verse eight, he lists five things. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So one thing that commentators point out is these five items are arranged in a chiasm, which is a rhetorically powerful way of communicating something. And so what you'll see is with these five items, number one and five are very similar. So number one, unity of mind, and then number five, humble mind. Those things go together because pride always hijacks unity, right? So number one and five are similar. And then number two and number four deal more with the emotions, so sympathy and a tender heart. So that's number two and four. And what these things are doing is they're moving toward the bullseye, which is the third or the middle item in the list, which is brotherly love, sibling-like love. So loving those in your, he's talking about love within the church here, loving people within the church as deep or maybe even in a deeper way than you love people in your own family. And so you can sum up, this list is basically two items which get to what brotherly love is, and that's humility and sympathy. So those are the first two. And then the, the third thing he says to do is verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, this, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And so here he's saying when, when you are wronged or belittled, instead of retaliating, just absorb that offense. And then not only don't retaliate, but actually actively bless the person in return. So let's just look at like some examples of what a few of these look like in action. So first, number one, humility. Uh, humility is simply put, and here I'm drawing from Paul's definition in Philippians 2. Humility is simply considering the person across from you as more significant than yourself. Especially when they are, you're in the midst of a disagreement with them or they've wronged you. Okay, so just considering the person across from you as more significant than yourself and treating them accordingly. And... <clears throat> I came across actually a helpful example of how this can play out. So I'm reading a book by the historian Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, in which he uh, details the historical developments that led into, like, how do we get to a place today where identity and fulfillment is viewed, like, exclusively through a very individualistic and me-centered lens? And it's a fascinating book. I think I may make it required reading for the church just because it's so helpful for engaging as a Christian in our culture. But he said, he said something in the intro that, that caught my eye. He said, okay, so as you learn about all the intellectual and aesthetic advancements that got us to where we are, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to fall into the trap of the Pharisee which says, oh, thank God I'm not like these people. And also, now that you have this new knowledge, don't think, okay, now I have the special knowledge that allows me to stand above the petty enchant enchantments of everyone else. And you hear what he's saying? Like, this is human nature. What we do is we, we read something, like, on a blog or on an article, and it changes our mind somehow and it enlightens us. And then the next day, we, we meet somebody who doesn't believe what we believe, even though we just found out about it 24 hours ago, and all of a sudden we think we're superior to them. <laughs> Right? Because like we're, we're now above the petty enchantments of everybody else. And he says, he's a, he's a Christian. He says, if you are a Christian, 
I mean, anything you see rightly in the world is purely by the grace of God. And if you know Jesus, it's because you weren't such great raw material, but Christ pursued you first. And so you need to have immense humility toward people uh, who are different than you, and especially than those who, who disagree with you. And so a few examples of just how to think about countering, uh, counting other people as more significant than yourself and not saying, oh, you know, thank God I'm not like them, or thank goodness I'm above those petty enchantments. So we do this spiritually. So you, especially in a church like ours that's reformed and values, you know, uh, doctrinal and biblical clarity, is there, there can be a posture about you where you meet somebody who you just, you know, you know they're wrong about something in the scriptures, and immediately now you're above their petty enchantments, you know, that's entrapping them. And so there's a tone about how you think about them or engage with them. Or think about behavioral things. So in general, we tend to be the most critical toward people who struggle the most with the areas we're strongest in. You know, so if you are a very disciplined person, you have a hard time being patient with people who just can't seem to get it together. Or if you're, if you're somebody who's like very good at seeing the nuances of life and you're, you see a lot of gray, you can, you know, you view people who see things in black and white terms as just like very judgmental and over the top and harsh, and now you're above the petty enchantments that they're entrapped in, you see. Politically, okay, one, one of the saddest things we've seen in the past year is, I'm not, not people out there, but people in the church, the way they talk about people on the opposite side of the aisle. Like, if you want a clear example of treating others as more significant than yourselves, do not look, sadly, at the way Christians have spoken online about people across the aisle. Okay, and the caricaturing and the belittling and the how could you, how dare you language, like, may not be so in the church. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing, just say a humble mind. You're not above any enchantments that others are, are entrapped in. Okay, so have, have patience. Okay, number two, he says sympathy and a tender heart. So sympathy is the, it's a intense desire in your gut to want to come alongside somebody and help them bear their burdens with them. That's what sympathy is. And what makes Christian sympathy different than the sympathy of the world is so how the world goes about sympathy is it you're drawn toward people who naturally elicit it from you so if you see a victim of natural disaster or a victim of injustice that elicits sympathy from us and it should that's that's a very good thing straight from the mouth of Jesus or your 10 closest friends and family members it's easy for you to move toward them in sympathy what Peter's saying here is by showing those in your church sympathy he's saying especially the people that you don't click with, okay? To actually want to move and get closer toward those in your church who, you know, you find incredibly boring, or maybe immensely irritating, to actually spend a lot of time with them and help them bear their burdens and feel what they feel. It's amazing here that God actually, he commands an emotion, so you intellectuals in the church take note, and pray for it. If you, if you don't feel like you have much affection in, in your gut for other people. Because it's this type of sympathy that moves toward people who aren't like us that's what most resembles Jesus Christ. In the book Gentle and Lowly, the author Dane Ortland, as he's describing Jesus, he says, when you read the Gospels, the most vivid element of the, of the portrait of Jesus is the way he moves toward 
touches, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but whose merciful affectations stream from his heart as rays stream from the sun. Can we move toward embrace those who aren't like us and show them sympathy? That's what shows the world an image of Christ. Okay, and then number three, a speech that blesses. So he says, don't repay evil for evil or or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And then to hammer the point home in verse 10, he says, whoever desires to love life, and he's basically reiterating it, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Peter here is quoting Psalm 34. And hopefully some of you remember from our Life of David series that took place during that period that shall not be named from last year. When David was running from Saul, and he was, you know, David had nothing, did nothing but serve Saul faithfully, but Saul betrayed him, and then he came after him to kill him. And David's in Philistine territory, and he's so fearful of his life that, he, you know, he grows a beard, and he play acts, and he scratches at the walls of the gate so that people think he's insane. And it's during that period that he writes this psalm, and Peter's using it as a way to, you know, he's saying, look at David, who was an incredible example of this, who didn't revile Saul. He didn't kill Saul when he had the choice, but he actually blessed Saul. This is what you need to do. And so it's not just a matter of non-retaliation, but when somebody wrongs you or belittling them, it, like it's hard enough to just grit your teeth and not say or think anything ill of them in return. But he's saying, actively bless them in return. And so seriously does God take this, that verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, David and Peter are saying, because this is how God treated us when we were his enemies and he moved toward us and reconciled us to himself, so seriously does he take this when, when, you, re- when you respond to evil by doing evil in return, there's a sense in which God actually removes himself from you. Like, that's how serious this is. And so, just a, a brief application here, I and mean, we could spend here all day, but as we think about the power of positive speech, because that's what Peter's calling us to. It's not just the absence of negative speech, but the power of positive speech. I'm sure a lot of you could, you know, you can quickly think of a time that somebody cut you deeply with their words. Like, we know the power of negative speech, but think about the power of positive speech. So, I'm sure all of you know someone, or maybe you are this person, where you've never heard one of your parents say, I'm proud of you. I love you. And that affects a person for the entirety of their life. And so, where can you in your life apply positive speech to somebody, and not just, I mean, to your friends, absolutely, family, absolutely, but particularly to your enemies and those who oppose you. Okay, so humility, sympathy, speech that blesses. All right, so those are the practices that Peter calls us to. So number two, we have to look at how do we actually do this? Because it's easy to, hopefully you're, if you think you're good at this, just in love, can I say, just spend some more time with Jesus and he'll show you that maybe you're not. Okay, or actually try to practice this and you'll see how difficult it is. So how do we get the ability to do this? And so here, if you're here and you are not a Christian, 
If you hear anything in today's sermon, please hear this. And if you're a Christian, you need to hear this because we forget it every single, every single week when we wake up on Monday morning. Because the point of Christianity and the point of who Jesus is, is he doesn't come and he says, okay, here's some practices. You know, be humble, have sympathy, practice speech that blesses so that you can touch up your life a little bit and look a little nicer to the world, who's wa- to the, to the world that's watching. Jesus says, I'm on a much more grand mission than that for you. Because what you need is not just new practices to make yourself a little nicer. You, you need a new heart. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, paraphrase, he says, the reason why you revert to pride rather than humility, the reason why you revert to indifference or bitterness rather than sympathy, the reason why you revert to, you know, cursing others with your words rather than blessing them it's not because it's the fault of the person across from you who's driving you crazy. The problem is, it's your heart. He says, there's something about your heart that apart from the intervention of God, there's something twisted about it. Where you, you don't honor and love God as you should, you don't honor and love pe- other people as you should. And so what you need is you need a new nature. You need to be born again, is what he says in John chapter 3. And so that's why Peter starts his letter in the third verse where he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. So what Peter's saying is, and then all the moral imperatives flow out of that. And so the point here isn't the sympathy, the humility, the speech that blesses. The point is you do those things in response to something that God has already done in you, which is what? The ultimate point of this is the God who abounds in mercy, the God who, abo- who abounds in unapproachable light and splendor, the, the God who abounds in steadfast love, the way he gave you a new heart is he sent Jesus Christ. And here's what's remarkable about how Jesus saved you, not just from the train wreck you make of your life, but even saving you from this present evil age, is the means by which he saved you was applying to you the very things that Peter's talking about here. Jesus, the only one who's factually second to none, he actually saw you as so much more significant than himself that he emptied himself of his power and humbled himself, not just by becoming a man, but by becoming a servant, and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was so sympathetic toward you He so badly wanted to bear your burdens that he didn't just come in to bear your sorrows, but it was on the cross where he wanted to bear for you all of God's righteous judgment on sin so that you never have to. I don't know what that felt like. I guarantee you it was horrible, but I'm never going to have to experience it because of how Jesus showed sympathy toward me, and it's the same thing for you. Does Jesus revile you when you revile him in return? When you ignore him for a week or for a month? No, he doesn't. He only blesses you. He might rebuke you. He might discipline you. But he never, ever regards you with contempt. He never, ever turns his back on you. And he does nothing but strengthen you and offer you forgiveness and pardon full and free. And so if you're here and you're not a believer, the point of the gospel of Jesus is run to Jesus not try to do a bunch of good things so you can be a little nicer. It's only in Christ that you can have forgiveness of sins and and fullness of life. And for the Christian, 
the means by which you apply these other truly impossible things is by going back to the gospel. First saying, oh my gosh, okay, if I'm not counting this person as more significant than me, if I'm not moving toward this person in sympathy, if I'm reviling in response to reviling, I'm now doing something completely antithetical to how Jesus Christ moved toward me and saved me. And not only that, but Jesus has actually given you a new heart so that you can actually do what he's asking you to do. That's how we get the ability to do these things. Now, what does it accomplish? What do doing these very ordinary things accomplish? Two things. There's a personal element and there's a public element. So first thing, personal. What happens when we follow these basic practices in everyday life? And we see this in verse 10. So he says, do these things, sympathy, humility, speech that blesses, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. So see good days, yes, he's talking about eternal life, so you know that you belong to Jesus if you're practicing these things. But see what he says, whoever desires to love life, he can't mean the, you know, superficial prosperity gospel that you often hear because he's talking to, to sufferers. No, what he's saying is, regardless of circumstances, do you want to be a consistently and fundamentally happy person? Follow these basic practices. And as I read this, I laughed in shame to myself because I thought back to this thought experiment I did. So uh, this was over 10 years ago. I was working for a small business, and I traveled to a business seminar where a very successful business couple were helping us learn how to grow a small business. And they opened up the seminar by telling us, okay, you know, take out your notebook, and I want you to write down your dream day. So just take 20 minutes and write out your dream day. Like, what does that look like? And what I wrote on my notebook, so I said, okay, um, wake up in Switzerland in my home that's designed like a hobbit hole on the foothills of the Swiss Alps. And, you know, don't set an alarm. Wake up whenever I get up. And no phone calls or people to deal with until 2 p.m. or so. And even then, maybe just an hour of dealing with people, except for my lovely wife, Kelsey. And you know, walk outside, have a fire nearby, just enjoy looking at the mountainside around me, and then, you know, have pancakes, whatever, and then just get to do whatever I want, you know, for the rest of the evening. And it, it makes sense that that was my, and I'm curious, this isn't rhetorical flourish, this is what I actually wrote down. And it makes sense that I put that because of how I've been conditioned to view the good life and fulfillment through a very, like, you know, me-centered uh, individual sense of... Uh, mission of seeking personal happiness. But you notice what that fantasy lacked? Community. Community. Like, I thought that was how I was going to live a good life, was getting away from all the annoying people, with the exception of my closest friends, my, my close family, and then living life that way. But Peter's saying, no. I mean, there are a lot of people who live... There. That's a very Instagrammable life. There are a lot of people who live very Instagrammable lives who are miserable people. Peter says, you know the, the way that you can, you can love life and be a consistently happy person is follow these basic practices. And necessary to following these basic practices is being in community. Because you can't practice these in a vacuum. When I'm by myself, I am the most humble, sympathetic, godly of speech person I know. Right? Until I'm with other people. But it's actually when you're with other people who are different than you and challenge you, that's what makes you a deeper person. That's what makes you a more Christ-centered person. That's what makes you a more happy person. 
This is why Jesus was so happy, because he was the most unself-centered person who's ever lived. So that's the first thing. When you practice these basic things, you actually begin to love life more. Number two, there's a public effect. So you don't see it immediately in this passage, but go down three more verses into chapter, um, into verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, this verse is a well-known verse, as it should be. If you've grown up in the church, you probably have it stamped on a coffee mug somewhere. And how we often read it is we say, okay, you know, yeah, I got to make a defense to someone asking me for a reason for the hope. So the way I tell somebody about the hope within me is I summon up all the rational argumentation that I can give them for why what I believe makes sense. Now, that's not untrue, and we'll talk about that next week, but Peter's saying something far more sophisticated than that. That rational argumentation is part of how people are drawn to Christ, but that sentence is actually a sub-point and a greater point, because there's all one train of thought from verse 8 beyond verse 15. So Peter's saying, you know, you know one of the most powerful ways that you can give somebody a reason for the hope that is within you? Show them a community who extends sympathy and humility and speech that blesses toward each other and to the world when it makes no sense. And that's what will draw people toward Jesus. I could give you examples about how this has happened. I won't for sake of time. But that is immensely powerful. And it goes in line with, remember our heading, chapter 2, verse 12. You know, live honorable lives among the Gentiles so they glorify God. We're still under that section. And so as an application here, let's think about it this way. So if 2020 and early January showed us one thing, it's that local news very quickly becomes national news. And national news very quickly becomes local news. And when these things blow up and a new news story comes and it, you know, hijacks our emotions and hijacks our conversations and hijacks everything that we talk about, I know in speaking with a lot of you guys, like one of the, the biggest burdens we feel is what can I do? You know, what can I do when there is so much brokenness in the world? And I don't even know where our country's going to be in you know, two years, let alone 20 years. And the temptation is to just get online and start yelling at people or to, you know, get your five people who think like you and make fun of the other side. What Peter's saying here is you, you can't change the demeanor of a president, whoever, whatever president that is, and you can't bend into submission the other half of the country that views politics completely the opposite of the way you do it. What Peter says is you know what you can do? Look at the person 10 feet away from you in these pews. When you move toward them and show them sympathy, humility, and then both to them and to the outside world, even when you're reviled, you respond with speech that blesses. That's what actually makes a world who, right now, at least in America, is very skeptical of Christianity, say, you know, I don't know if I can quite... Get, get behind everything that I hear Jesus talk about. But what, how you guys live is unbelievable. Can I know more? That's something you can do that's, that's very tangible. If you want to work in politics, please do. You know, if you want to 
uh, work for a, a great social cause, you know, please do. But let's, let's keep the first things the first things, which is being faithful with these very basic practices. And as we do, not only do we li- love life more, but we invite other people to have life to the full too. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that most of us do not have to be extraordinary, uh, like Paul or a lot of those Old Testament figures. Uh, I know I personally, uh, I would have failed and fallen off the map a long time ago. And so I thank you for giving us difficult things, but things that are very doable by the power of your Spirit, uh, to not only help us look and love more like Jesus, but to draw other people toward you. Help us, God. We cannot do this on our own power Um, But by you and your strength and your faithfulness toward us, we can. And so I ask that you will do that through us, Lord. Help us not to be bored or uninterested with obeying you in the ordinary. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.